Fuck what they talk about. I've been getting my cake and running wild since a little child. Yeah. Getting it every day. I'm working sun up till the sun down. Yeah. I'm getting it every day. These niggas hating. What's up, guys? This is Jake Carlisle, and welcome to the Capital Gains Podcast, where we share our experiences on how to flip and invest in real estate, the stock market, and all things fitness. Join us as we dive deep into the world of self development, and let's get ready to make some capital gains. I'm joined today by Zach Mayer, um, Chad Balsrick, and our special guest, Sam Lawhon. So what's up, boys? Yo. How you doing, guys? So um, this is our very first guest on the Capital Gains Podcast, so I'm pretty excited for this. I think it'll be a good one. Um, so go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, Sam. Hey, guys. Um, my name's Sam Lawhon. Um I've been in the world of finance for a little while. I work for an investment advisory firm uh, doing portfolio construction, portfolio management, so strategies. I deal with institutions and high net worth investors. Uh, but above all, I just enjoy talking about the markets uh, and growing with like-minded people. So happy to be on. Thanks for the invite, guys. Absolutely. Yeah, welcome. Absolutely. So a little backstory. Um, Sam is one of Chad's buddies from way back and uh we got to do a lot of i guess um sam get, likes to do likes to get us to go out there and swim and run a little bit um <laughs> back in the day and now we're now he's out running 40 miles a day swimming swimming 15 miles a day and and uh just tearing it up iron man sam i i love it man i love is that, it is that, is that the tiktok plug Man, the TikTok is gone. Oh. <laughs> it is gone, man. No, I yeah, couldn't. Man. I couldn't do it anymore. Too many people found me. It's too embarrassing. You never oh, want that. Part, you never want that brought up in a business meeting. Hey, is this you running shirtless? R.I.P. Iron Man Sam. <laughs> it's gone. Nah, now nah, working, working stealth. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, Zach, I'll let you. I'll let you take take the reins on this one, and let you kind of ask the questions and and see what we can do. Sure. So I think I'm not quite sure, but I think we we're going to talk about the stock market and kind of what about is going on right now. Given that we've had a few red days, and everyone likes to panic when we're down a total of like five percent for some reason. So since we're a podcast, we will cater to them. And since we have Sam here, I would love to ask more questions to him. But earlier, before we started this podcast, we were kind of talking about why we've been tumbling down these last few days. And I had mentioned a few things. I mentioned the 10-year treasury yield rising, mentioned the potential for the corporate tax increase. Um, on top of that, uh, Senator Warren's comments during the Fed meeting, just because the market seems to like Jerome Powell, so it seemed to be a little scared there. Uh, but those are the three things I'd kind of thought of. And then me and Sam kind of slightly disagreed on what we thought was more prevalent in causing this, this little tumble we have going on. So I'm sitting here thinking that the corporate tax hike is more of a big deal. And then Sam was saying that he thinks the opposite and the 10 year treasury spike is more important. So I want to defer to him and kind of find out why he thinks that since He's the one in an office and with a more important title than me. So maybe I will learn myself something or maybe Sam will say something and we'll go back and forth for a little bit. Yeah, no, uh, you know, I think headline risk um, is a factor, certainly. Right. So when you have big flashy things on uh, CNBC uh, that are talking about J-PAL, 
uh, I like to call him private equity pal and Warren and um, the tax bill and, you know, the potential government defaults, right? You have headlines that say that U.S. is going to go bankrupt or is going to default, <laughs> which is just is, is silliness, right? It's pure stupidity because that's not how it technically works. And that not is not you, but the amount of friends I've had text me this week that I help invest and have been, have been like, yo, are we like, is the government going to go away? Uh, like what's happening? Are we going to like <laughs> in debt to the like Decepticons? Like I'm just so confused as to what they're talking about. Really. I mean, in, in actuality, uh, government employees will stop getting paid for a period of time. This has happened before, but which is very unfortunate to be a government employee, but other than that, you know, you might not be able to visit a national park. As far as actual economic impact, it's minimal to none. So that's not a real concern. They always default on the debt um, and kick that's the can good. down. The, they don't, um, sorry, let me take the back. They don't always default on the debt. We've only ever once defaulted. Um, despite what Yellen was saying yesterday, we have defaulted one time, but even when that happens, they always raise the debt ceiling and kick the can down the road. It's not a true issue and it's going to be partisan and political. And so that's why you're seeing it in headlines because it's really easy to sell fear. And that's what generates clicks. But in reality, when we look at the mechanics of the market, um, we we're talking a little bit earlier about how markets are efficient, um, how news flow is efficient and the markets are about a lot of those things. And a lot of this has been expected. The tax hikes have been expected for a long time. Um, yeah, some language changes to it, but the, they've largely, some form of tax hike has been expected. Um, you know, there's probably even more salient things to my industry, like um, step up in basis going away or carried interest. Those types of things are going to really affect retirees. And it's probably not the purpose of what we want to talk about today because it doesn't apply to uh, the audience as much. But my general view is that we're in a regime change. So um, let's take it back to last year. Uh, we were in what we call a, a quad two or grid two. In that regime, you have inflation accelerating and you have growth accelerating. All right, in that time period, everything works. Small caps work, cyclicals work large caps work, foreign works, um, everything that's within that quad two regime works. And so we saw this massive recovery um, because growth was accelerating off of COVID lows. Inflation was accelerating from a deflationary period during COVID. That's the best time to be an investor. We then earlier this year, March or so of this year, the US transitioned into um, what we call the quad three. Um, and so that's when uh, growth is starting to slow and inflation is still moving up. Um, in that regime, not as much work. Small caps don't do as well. Bond yields drop. Um, REITs do really well. It's more dispersed as to what does well and what doesn't. So we've seen this kind of cyclical chop. More recently, we've seen cyclicals rise up with commodity prices going crazy. Um, but over the last you know six months, we've really seen a lot of chop in the market. Now, S&P's made new highs, QQQ has made, or NASDAQ's made new highs, Dow's made new highs, but that's largely driven by a small amount of companies that are moving higher. And that's gonna be relevant to the next point. And so 
now we're moving into this regime, back into this quad two regime where inflation is accelerating again. Um, and we can get into why inflation is accelerating and why inflation is not transitory. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit because I think people really need to understand this point. It's critical that they do. Um, and growth is accelerating back off of Delta lows because Delta really brought that growth down, brought that growth curve down, but then inflation was accelerating at the same time and it creates a dispersion or a turns. So now we're moving back into that, a mini, what we'd call like a mini regime because we don't think it's gonna last for that long, maybe a quarter to two, because uh, we think we're gonna slow into Q1 of next year. But for now, we're seeing things tick back up. Now, whenever you have this regime change, typically you see bond yields go up. So the 10-year yield went from, it's been in this, this uh, chop pattern or kind of consolidation pattern at 1.25 to 1.35%. Well, that finally broke out this past week up to, it's now I think sitting at 1.6. I'd have to check Bloomberg, but I think we're at 1.6 right now. When that happens, it scares off tech, right? Because whenever the yields go up, it makes it more expensive for tech companies that are heavily reliant on debt to grow. Um, it makes those investors want to get out of those companies because it effectively slows growth. 1.532 is what we're 5, Okay, so we pulled back just a little bit on the yields, but we still broke out really heavily this week. That's a big move in the 10-year yields. And so um, going all the way back to the initial point that you made, I think that it has a lot more to do with what yields do because the correlation is there. Um, secondly, if it was just headline risk in the U.S., we wouldn't see yields and in international markets do what they did this week. So international markets also had yields go up right along. So the German Bund, um, Japanese bonds, Swiss bonds, they all went up this week in course, well, in concert with the U.S. 10-year. And so I think it's more of a bond market move that is moving overall markets. And so then what happens whenever you have Google, Amazon, Apple, Netflix as massive, massive uh, holdings or weightings in the major indices. So, you know, the fam G, so Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, they make up 40% of the NASDAQ. And whenever those are all high rich valuations, high multiple tech stocks, and they all get hit in concert, well, that really brings down the indices. When the indices have negative momentum and institutions have to rebalance out of some positions, then it causes selling across the board. It's just a, it's a mechanical machine. And we're just very, 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 very small players in this machine. So we need to recognize how the machine works. And I think that's, that's largely what's going on here. So sorry for the really long explanation there, but. <laughs> No, that, that was honestly great. I think a lot of people listening probably learned a shit ton just from that blurb, to put it simply. But I think that like what a lot of people don't understand that you brought up is how much FANG stocks play a role in dragging the indices up. And then I think you've explained better than anyone on here has before how that kind of is creating this like domino effect of now that yields are rising, fangs decrease, but since fangs drag so much of the overall market, you've got people rebalancing their positions, like you said. Um, 
And no, I think you, you've more convinced me than anything. My, my initial thought when I was watching the Fed meeting was just that it seemed to me just having like been keeping up with like news every day, not necessarily news, but like all the Fed meetings, all the SCP reports, all the stuff like that. The sentiment around it just seemed like a lot of people, especially in the last year, were paying too much attention to the bond yields. And then every time we saw the slightest move in bond yields, people were reacting in the market saying like, oh, tech's about to go down, blah, 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 blah. And it just seemed to me like this tax bill had been pushed off for so long that it had been priced in around the time of Biden's election happening and then right. sort of forgotten about in the time in between then and now. But I, like you said, you're on a mechanical level, you're more than right. Yeah, I, would, I would agree with you maybe from a, um, a retail investor level that, yeah. that might make sense and how they react, but institutions really don't react like that as much. Um, so really you want to look when, when we're investing um, in general, we want to look at how the machine works because the headlines that we see on a daily basis mean almost nothing. Those are, uh, to give you an analogy, that's like looking at a Mustang and saying, because that paint job or just a car in general and saying, because that paint job is really good, the car is going to be really fast. Well, you have no, you have no indication of what the actual motor that's driving all of that is doing, right? And so whenever we're looking at markets and we're making long-term decisions or even short-term decisions, we want to look at what are the internal mechanics of the market and how is that being affected? So when you look at the amount of money that quants are pushing uh, and that rules-based institutions are moving around, the slightest move in the bond yields can make a big difference because they might say, if we have breakout, of, I'm really simplifying this because their algorithms are very complex, but let's say that their algorithm says, if the tier yield goes over 1.35, or um, maybe even a better example on a percentage basis, if it moves more than 10% in a 48 hour period, then we reduce allocations to tech stocks by 2%. Okay, 2% might not sound like a big deal, but if that's a $5 billion portfolio, it it's a lot of money, right? And you multiply that across the spectrum. So we really try and focus, and I would encourage all investors to do this, focus on the actual mechanics of it. Look at how institutions are positioning themselves. So you want to look at volatile implied vol premiums, right? So you want to look at what the protection is that um, investors on an institutional level are paying for the volatility. So for example, last week, whenever we had the Evergrande cascade, the meltdown there, institutions were putting a ton of protection on SPY and in case it dropped. So the implied vol premium was about two standard deviations from the norm and it was about 104%. So they were more than 100% protected um, from downside risk. Now that gives you an opportunity because what happens is whenever the volatility is crushed, whenever we have a VIX crush, all of that comes down and we have basically a melt up, right? Um, and so they start shedding that protection. They don't buy more protection because they're so protected. The VIX goes down, which then makes the upside more. So that, that gets pretty technical there. I won't go too deep into options and positioning. Uh, the bottom line is here, pay attention to the mechanics of the market. Uh, avoid headline risk. So as investors, we want to avoid emotion as much as possible because that's how we make mistakes, whether it's FOMO, aping into something, right? chasing GameStop to $400. We make mistakes when we get emotional. 
So we need to have a rules-based process and we can talk later about that, but we want to have a rules-based process as much as possible in investing. Yeah, thank you. I mean, Jake, Chad, I don't want to keep talking over you guys if I am. So if there's anything you guys want to punch in here, otherwise I'll, yeah. I, I think he's 100% right on the, on the rules base and taking everything out, taking ev all your emotions out of it because, and I'll go back to the, you know, the, I don't know who, who posted Hoodville or something that said the U.S. government is running out of money on <laughs> October 18th, right? And everybody in the comments is like, well, that sucks. Um you know, uh, I thought we were paying taxes, uh, you know, cat, cat, uh, catastrophe or whatever. And uh, even my boy Stuman was like, oh, no, the 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 world's ending. I told you and all the conspiracy theorists were right. And I'm like, like, dude, like, have you ever heard of a debt ceiling? <laughs> and I text my uncle. I said, what in the world's going on here? And he said, education system has failed us. And I was like, <laughs> you might be right. Um, but okay. it's just. It's just mind blowing to me, you know. Obviously, it's a headline. People, people just don't know. Yeah, they, they again react emotionally, and that's where we as investors um, can make money. Is it's not taking advantage of of the uninformed, but it's by being informed and not making those knee jerk emotional reactions. Because if you were to react to every headline risk, um, I've got a, a great chart that. It shows as the S&P goes up, um, all of the major things that were gonna crash the market supposedly, and the vast majority of them never happen. The things that crash the market, nobody sees coming. You know, that, I mean, that's why Michael Burry's famous because no, no one really saw 2007 coming and he saw it. Um, Same with COVID. So all the things that are gonna crash the market, quote unquote, typically don't crash the market. Yeah. I think you're right. One thing I want to jump to that I think listeners want to hear about too that you brought up is inflation and kind of relating to what you're talking about as far as stuff you don't see coming and people freaking out from headlines is like, I think you can tell when the headlines are becoming more and more when people in your friend circle and your family who are less and less interested in finance start texting you or asking you like, like my stepdad this morning doesn't care about stocks, doesn't care about any of the market stuff. Text me this morning. I think all my stocks are going to fail please, please help me like pick new ones. And I was like, what did you read this morning? And he was like, oh, on the news, it said this. And I was like, if it's reaching you, that means we must be at some sort of peak mass media fear right now. Because <laughs> I know I'm a weirdo sitting at my desk reading Bloomberg. So I see all these headlines and I'm able to like brush them off like you're talking about. Right. But, but if I'm talking to people who have no interest in this stuff and they're afraid. But anyways, back to inflation. I, I live life on very one very simple principle. And that everything can be, it's literally that everything can be explained very simply in two sentences. And so with regards to inflation, I've heard so many theories and even the Fed has given their transitory theory. But when I like, when I say I like to keep things simple, it's look at the amount of money we printed, look at this bottlenecks and supply chains, the easiest, most basic uh, senior year of high school definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. And regardless, in my opinion, how you spin it in between before when we started quantitative easing and now, we have all of this extra money and we have all of these supply chain issues. And 
to me, one of the best indicators of inflation is when your friends and family are going to the grocery store and saying like, eggs are expensive. This is expensive. Uh, your, your dad works in some sort of construction business. It's like, yeah, like the cost of our jobs have been really high. Like random stuff like that. When you start hearing like regular people day to day talking about how typical commodities or goods are really expensive, to me, tends to be a good indicator. I think I, I, I remember on Christmas last year, my grandfather was like, yeah, like, what the hell? I went to put new blinds in and new doors in my, my house and they're so expensive. And I was like, oh, I was like, that's probably the fifth thing in the last week I've heard somebody say that's expensive that could be affected by inflation. So I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, so um, I'm a bit wordy, but <laughs> I, I, uh, I agree with, with breaking it down to simplicity. So I, I'm going to take it a step farther and say there's two types of infl inflation. There's cyclical inflation and there's secular inflation. Cyclical, cyclical excuse me, inflation is when something happens like coronavirus and it goes through a cycle, right? And so it rises up for a while and then it drops off. So when the Fed has talked about inflation being transitory, they're talking about the price of things like airline tickets, hotels, um, random uh, Airbnbs, same, same thing, right? Uh, transportation, your Uber, et cetera, rising in price, concerts, consumer goods, consumer discretionary goods, not consumer staples necessarily. And those things roll over, right? Like right now, um, I'll give you like a, an example of microinflation. Uh, so the Ironman this year got canceled because COVID, Ironman World Championships in Kona. It got changed to next year. Well, for next year, unfortunately, it's during high tide season, which is very popular time to be on the island. So athletes aren't able to get hotels for the same price. The hotels cost 3x the price, right? This is a supply and demand, very basics 101. Um, but in that very mini, mini cycle of one year, the cost to travel there has inflated exponentially, but that's going to roll over the next year, right? So that would be a cyclical example. Secular is when um, it's across the board and we're transitioning to a new regime of inflation. So it's whenever goods and services increase, wages increase, that's when you know that um, the long-term inflation is stickier because when wages start to increase, they don't go back down, right? If I hire somebody for $50,000 a year and I give them a raise because the cost now is $58,000 a year to be competitive, let's just say 60. Next year, when everything rolls over from a cyclical perspective, I can't go back to that person and say, hey, listen, um, Airplane tickets are a lot cheaper now, so you're going back down to 50 grand. Like, that's not going to work. They're going to quit, right? And so that's an example of secular inflation. Um, we get inflation when the money supply goes up and the velocity of money goes up. Now, the velocity has been largely suppressed. So everyone last year when we are printing all this money was saying, I don't see any inflation. It's actually, it was actually deflationary, right? But then as people started going back out and entering the workforce, spending money, that velocity shot up. And so now we're seeing this massive inflationary rise. So the Fed is saying, well, inflation is just transitory. 
if you don't hear anything else on this podcast, I want you to understand transitory and transient are not the same thing. Transient is like when you're going to run in the morning and there's a cloud on the ground, but by the time you're done running, it disappears. It was there for a little bit and then it just disappears, right? That cloud was transient. That's different than transitory. <laughs> transitory is going to something, it's transitioning. That's a really, really important concept to understand because it means that we're going to a new regime of inflationary pressure. And so it doesn't mean that we're necessarily gonna be at 6% inflation on an annualized basis. Um, I'm not saying we're gonna get runaway inflation, but if the Federal Reserve's target is 2% and we're at 3.5% inflation, that's a pretty big deal. And it's gonna cause a lot of disruption within the markets. So one thing that I'm really focused on from a, a secular inflation standpoint is cost of shelter uh, or owner's equivalent rent is what it's called in the CPI. Um, so the CPI is what the Federal Reserve looks at for, from an inflationary standpoint. Um, for example, like lumber is not actually in the CPI. It takes another basket of goods and services. 33% or 32.1% of the CPI is made up of owner's equivalent rent or rent, right? So how much it costs to rent an apartment. Now, last year, that was actually depressed because people were moving out of cities. Um, they were buying homes. That's what drove this initial tailwind of home buying. But now people are going back to their jobs. They're going back to apartments. And almost always, historically, the cost of rent has been on a lag to the cost of homes because the cost of homes go up and then people start raising rents on um, their homeowners, right? Or their, sorry, the people who are renting from them, their tenants. And then that translates over to the apartment sector. And so we're starting to see that where we're having, I mean, I was just looking this week in Houston uh, at apartments. My previous apartment was 1100 bucks. It's going up to 1500 for a 600 square foot apartment. So we're seeing massive inflationary pressure uh, across the board in rents. Come that makes Boston. up. Go ahead. Come out to Boston where it's painful every month to reach up my behind and drag whatever money is left to pay rent. It's 30 oh, I... a month here for. Oh, that's brutal. But we're, we're seeing that across the board, even San Francisco. Um, and I can post some charts later, but San Francisco's seeing double digit increases in rent. And so that is going to be a long-term phenomenon that's going to continue to increase, um, which then will lead to inflation. One last point on that, and we can go to something else, but uh, when you have supply chain bottlenecks, it feeds on itself. So we're seeing a ton of supply chain issues. I mean, the cost of a container from China has literally been up ever, to get a container from China to the U.S. has been up every single day for 372 days now. Wow. It's not had one down day in cost. It used to be about twelve to fifteen hundred dollars to for one container. It's about fifteen thousand now. So that's gonna continue to transition through the entire supply chain all the way down to the consumer. Um, but my my overall point there is that inflation is not going away so quickly. And whenever you have these supply chain constraints, people go to the store and whereas they might have just bought one bad cat food, if they can't find cat food anymore, guess what? They're buying four. 
So now it puts even more pressure because no, everyone starts hoarding and then they raise prices, but people don't care as much about the prices. They care about the availability. Yeah. And so then that increases inflationary pressures higher. Now, some of that is going to roll over, right? We'll, we'll figure out these supply chain constraints. Um, but then there's also the secular side. So what I'm saying is there's, there's a nuance there. There's both bottom line and all this inflation is going higher for longer. Yep. Yeah, that, that was, that was a great explanation too. I think, well, oh, one thing just to mention for everyone listening, uh, velocity of money is basically think about it. Like when you get paid from work, how many times is that money changing hands? So right. say money goes from one, two, three people, you're at a velocity of three. Um, and during the pandemic, obviously everyone's inside. So velocity of money was really low and nobody was out doing things, transacting, and a lot of money was getting parked somewhere. So that right. was kind of the issue is what that Sam was talking about. Um, that was really all I, was, I just wanted people to understand. And then you had mentioned in there one thing about rent prices lagging. Um, Jake and Chad, do you guys increase your rent sooner than later on your places? Yeah, I was going to comment on that in the supply chain. Uh, other supply chain first. Um, I've talked to two people, um, one who honestly, you know, isn't a big player, but he said that he, he actually does Christmas lights here in, uh, Brazos, Brazos Valley. And he said he has a hundred thousand dollars worth of Christmas lights sitting on the Gulf or I guess, um, on the West coast. And, um, especially my uncle, he said that I asked him if, you know, obviously I know the, the answer, but I said, Hey, like, are you getting hit by supply chain issues hard? And he said, yeah, it's our number one number one problem in anything right now. He said, I, you know, we just can't get anything. Everything's taking a lot of time. And on the rent side of things, um, like Sam was saying, you're seeing double, double digit increases, even in San Francisco. Um, I think one of the reasons that is, is so the, the demand for housing is so high right now. And so prices are sky high. And especially here in College Station, the rents do not match the prices at all. I mean, they, they're, there are duplexes going here for $330,000, $350,000 with rents that are sitting at $2,250, which doesn't, doesn't make sense at all. Like you're, you're really not going to make any money on that. And so investors are, oh boy, investors are kind of coming in and saying, Hey, okay, if I'm buying it for that, you know, I have to raise the rents to 1500 aside, right? Or 1600, 1700 aside, because that's what I paid for it. And so I, I'm hoping we see, you know, an increase, you know, selfishly, I say, I'm hoping we, we see an increase in rent be to, to support the prices, because if you don't, you know, you know you're going to see the, the prices start to come back down because the rent won't, won't uh, sustain itself. But um, you'll probably end up seeing a, an increase in rent on the, I mean, probably so just from my perspective, um, people don't want to, don't want to see those prices come down so you're gonna almost certainly see that because um home prices don't respond to rents rents respond to home prices yeah uh home prices respond to supply and demand and supply is still extremely low yep and so that's what's going to dictate overall the home prices right um it's not going to be now you could have lesser demand from investors because rents aren't moving up, but typically uh, the larger pools of capital in home <coughs> buying are not from investors, 
not on the residential side. Right. So I think yeah. one, thing, one thing that, that encourages me, <clears throat> I say encourages me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's why the housing market is so high. Um, and this is probably a, a, a result of, you know, 07, 08, everybody was so leveraged, home builders got screwed. And uh, I think in the decade of 07, 08, or say, sorry, 2000, 2010, I think there were like 12.6 million homes built. I believe it was something like that. And then in this past decade, there were 5.2 million homes built less than half while the population still increases and um, now demand is at all time highs and doesn't seem to be stopping. Yeah. Agreed. Severe lack of capital in space from really 2011 to 2017 is when 2017 is about when they started building again. Yep. <clears throat> yep. But. I know we've been going for a little while. I don't know how much time Sam has. <clears throat> what are you, what are you guys thinking right now? I, I was thinking maybe we switch into something more, a little more fun here. Like a, what, what are we all buying right now? Just for everyone listening. What are we selling even? What are we buying? Only obviously only what everyone likes to tell people. This is uh, up to you, up to your discretion. I'll go ahead and start because I don't care. So <laughs> recently uh, I bought SoFi when it was under 15. Um, I like SoFi. I thought it was finally cheap. I've been waiting to buy it. And so I've been telling myself under 15. That's another concept that I think everyone listening, if you invest for yourself needs to learn is pick stocks, set a number that you want them to go below and be patient. Literally set, set an alert, set some sort of notification for yourself and then forget about it. Because you don't want to be averaging in when the prices are really high and you yourself had done some sort of due diligence to come up with, okay, under 15 is where I want it. So not only were you right about your pick, but now you lose time because you just were buying in too early and all these other things. But no, patience, like we've talked about before, pays. Um, let's see. Some of the fun stocks, I bought SoFi. I added more to my LAND position when it was under 22. Um Let's see. I bought Caterpillar when it was at like um, low one. It was like 190, 189. That was another one. I just wanted to buy a position. I literally only bought four shares because it's still too pricey for like for me to build like a large enough position. Uh, other than that, I don't think there's been anything too crazy. I, I traded UTSL a little bit, which is um, a utilities triple leveraged index. And other than that, noth nothing too exciting. Jake, I know you're going to talk about Tell. No. Oh. <laughs> well, I uh, I actually didn't like. I sold my Tell, so I was at I was in at I don't know three thirty five, and you know I, I had I was I did was Zach did I averaged down too much. Yeah. And um, it spiked to like three sixty five, three seventy. I was like, sweet, so I'm out. And like two hundred bucks. And I, I actually still had some options, um, some long, some leaps, and yeah. kept those. But um, I texted my uncle. I said, "Man, Tell's doing good." He said, "Yeah, I just sold it all. I'll probably back, probably buy back in tomorrow." Lo and behold, um, market kind of tanks the next day, two days, and it goes all the way down to three twelve. And I didn't buy any. And uh, and then three four days later, it's over four dollars. And so now I'm kicking myself. I still have the options, but I'm like, man. So the moral of this lesson is: be patient and don't be. Uh, don't, don't sell if your overall thesis doesn't change. Yep. 
I mean, because you know, nothing, literally nothing changed from then to now. It's just the the price and me looking at it, and that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll preface this by saying this is not financial advice. Do your own due diligence. I'm a fiduciary, so um, none of this is to be taken as financial advice. This is for information purposes only. <laughs> but um, a couple names that I like really off the beaten path names. And um, so they're going to probably be a little more volatile. Uh, these are kind of my crazier names, probably not something that I would well, I might put some of them in client accounts, but um, this is more of my own personal uh, fund stocks. So take that for what it's worth. BLDE. Uh, I love me some BLDE. So <laughs> Blade uh, Air Mobility. Um, they are a helicopter company that uh, is soon going to be an EVTOL, so electric vehicle um, helicopter company. They were previously... Um, a SPAC and the stock price I think is around $11 right now, but they hold um, $5 per share in cash. So super, super cheap company. They are a profitable company and um, they've got, I think right now about $130 million in cash. They uh, dropped as low as about $6.50. I bought more on that recently. Um, because that means their effective share price is about $1.50 um, with the cash they have in hand. And then they spiked off of that because they did a $15 million acquisition. So um, they still, even after that acquisition to transport um, organs, which is gonna be a big part of their business going forward, um, mm -hmm. live organ transplants, because you don't wanna have to drive for four hours, a lot easier to do it in a helicopter. Um, essentially subcontract for hospitals doing that. I really, really bull team, right? When you're looking at small caps or micro caps, you want to find a management team you believe in because that's what's going to drive it ultimately. But lots of cash on hand, love the direction the company's going. Um, they were up as high as $20 earlier this year. So um, hold a meaningful position there. Uh, the second one I like, um, I'll give you three real quick here. So the second one is called Duty Free. <laughs> um, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's Duty Free Shops. Um, around the world. So during COVID pandemic, they got really beaten down, obviously, but everybody in that space did. And they were able to create more of a monopoly in the space because a lot of the uh, mom and pop shops that had concessions at airports had to give those up because they simply went out of business. So they were able to expand. Um, Alibaba owns about a 9% stake in the company and is going to bring them across China more in the luxury goods market. Super cheap company right now. It's been really beaten up. So I uh, like that from value play perspective. And what was the ticker? A D-U-F-R-Y. It's an ADR. Oh, gotcha. Okay. It's European. Um, and then finally, um, this is a, a flyer, but um, in the blockchain space, there's a company called Vimenti, um, ticker V-M-N-T. And they're going to have probably the only SEC audited stablecoin which is a pretty big deal um, because nobody has audited stable coins for the most part. Nobody has SEC audited stable coins. And so that means that all these stable coins in the crypto space, you have no idea where the money's going. <laughs> so you buy USDV, right? And which has about 70 billion in issuance. You don't know where that 70 billion is. So you go to redeem your USDV one day and 
for a, a US dollar and they can just say, oh, sorry, we spent all the US dollars. <laughs> and they make their money by investing um, or giving out loans, et cetera. That's how they're like a bank, right? And so I'm really bullish on this company, very, very small company, but I think they've got a lot of potential. I think the stock's at thirty or something like right now. And um, I see this thing, you know, on a potentially going to 10, 15 bucks, but who knows? That's when, when did they announce uh, the SEC audited the coin? Because they are up. I just looked at the ticker. Was it recently? Because they're up. No, they're, well, they've recently had a big run. Yeah. Um, but they, they've submitted for their coin is audited, but they submitted S1 registration uh, yesterday, I believe. Cool. So, but it's a, I mean, micro cap that trades on very low volume. So once this thing really gets pumping, it can move a lot. Sure. So those are, those are my three for today. Uh, next time we do this, I'll, I'll come with some fresh new ideas. There we go. And I'm not holding anything. I mean, I have, so I have a lot, usually I'll have stuff. Sam helps me a lot with it. I have mine mainly in Ethereum. And one of the main reasons being is because one over probably 75% of my money's in houses right now. And I have another account that just sits there. And instead of it sitting in just a savings, I have it sitting in Ethereum, but I just have to be able to liquidate that pretty much at any time. So that boy, that boy said he's okay with a hundred percent yield in that savings account or negative 50%. (laughs) (laughs) That man's hating. That's about, that's about what Ethereum is. So. Hey, I like Ethereum. I I I hold some. I, I'm not judging. It's just you know, when you have seven of them, it's a little different. I'm not judging, but <laughs> here let me judge real quick. Yeah, right. Uh, well, y'all got anything else? No, that that was fun. That was good. I learned a lot. It was nice to meet you, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, nice to meet you as well, man. Let's do it again. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Sam, you going? Uh, you going to run 100 miles tonight? I was gonna think I was thinking two hundred, but you know. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It. <laughs> what, what did you do this morning? Uh, man, I actually didn't this morning. I worked till really late last night. Um, but I'll go, uh, swim two miles at lunch, and then I'll ride thirty this evening. Just a, well, just not, a quick thirty. Do it. Not bad. Just a quick thirty. Yeah, it will. It'll be pretty easy. That's not too bad. Well, no. here you go. If you wanna. <laughs> If you wanna, if you wanna get fit, and do some Ironmans. Hit up Sam. Yeah, come on, I'll train you. There we go. Hey, well, I appreciate it, guys. It was good talking to you. Yes, sir. Anything else? I think that's it. Go make some capital gains. There we go, baby. Wow. All right, you guys. Thanks Later, for guys. thanks for listening to the Capital Gains podcast. Um, if you got any value from this, please share it. And give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, thank you, Sam, for coming on today, and uh, I'm sure we will have you back. And let's show the world how to make some capital gains. Cheers, boys. Peace. Woo! 101 Sam. Hey, yo, Fuck what they talking about. I've been getting my cake and running wild since a little child. Yeah, getting it every day. I'm working sun up till the sun down. Yeah, I'm getting it every day. These niggas hating, trying to see how I do this shit. Bitch, I'm not new.